Good afternoon and welcome to the First Port Podcast. This episode has been recorded on Monday the 5th of September from San Diego, California. It's Labor Day and I'm joined by none other than Patrick Douglas. Patrick, how are you today? Howdy, howdy. How are you? I'm good, Patrick. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. good. Yeah, I'm just uh, recording here from the Hard Rock Hotel trying to get a bit of respite from the heat it's hot as hell outside um how are you coping you know this is this is standard september weather for us so uh yeah you just kind of hunker down or if you can get out to sea um it's generally cooler out there but yeah it's the uh the late summer doldrums we just got to get through it yeah Oh, well, I was walking up um, there on Saturday up towards the USS Midway and little to no sea breeze. And when there was, it felt like a, a dryer. I'm, I'm warm. So. <laughs> yeah. yeah, when there's no there's no cooling Pacific breeze, it could be, you know, uh, pretty horrendous. And then we got to get through October where we've got... Um, you know, the Santa Ana winds that blow down uh, from the mountains to the ocean. And that's what sets off all the wildfires. So, I mean, fingers crossed, you, you, you don't get to witness one of those. But they're getting they're getting a little bit more active as the years go by. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think it's supposed to cool down just a tiny bit from midweek. So, um, you know, maybe, maybe I'll be out and about walking around a little bit more. But uh, I'm, I'm enjoying the local beaches and I'm enjoying the... The downtown San Diego, I was in the harbor there the other day. I, I saw the fishermen bring in all the yellowfin tuna and the wahoo and the mahi. And, yeah, but, it's been it's been an awesome fishing year this year. Um, you know, all indications this one's off the hook. Good. Uh, you know, when the fishing boats only have to go a couple of miles offshore to get into you know 150 pound 250 pound yellowfin and then there's a few bluefin tuna mixed in there uh you know like life is good so well they certainly looked like they're having the time of their life and i was just having the time of my life just looking at them and seeing them weigh uh, weighing all the fish so um yeah maybe maybe someday i'll get back and i'll i'll get on a charter boat and and do some fishing yeah yeah well you're 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 more than welcome i mean back in the day uh, back in the day, we used to fish on the way out to Guadalupe Island and back. Um, we'd, we'd stop on big kelp patties. We'd call it knocking on a kelp patty. You'd get this, uh, you know, 75 miles offshore, you'd get this 200-foot kelp patty just sitting there in the ocean. And because the Pacific is pretty much a desert out there, any any kind of structure brings in lots and lots of fish. Um, and we would just load up you know, with fresh sushi grade tuna on that thing for a couple of hours and then continue on our way. That was that was back in the good old days. We, we don't do that anymore. Yeah. Yeah, I, I can only imagine. But uh, speaking of Guadalupe Island, uh, Patrick, and, and the reason why we're here, um, so mm. um, what I like to do is I like to get the audience to learn who you are and, and, and what you do so and uh, maybe can you can you tell us just you now about your your early life growing up and um, you know how, how you got into uh, boat operations and nature conservation yeah I mean it's a, a most unlikely life path you know I I uh, 
I spent my my formative twenties, I guess, in the U.S. Virgin Islands, kind of uh, growing up there uh, in tourism. And uh, in my late twenties, I came back to the United States and started working for uh, the Academy of International Medical Studies, uh, leading 21-day tours around the planet. And I, I definitely got the bug early about. Um, travel and tourism and adventures but more to the more to the point authentic adventures uh real adventures things that that, that cause people to you know remember them for years on um and in in the midst of, of doing all this i ended up uh in san francisco working for cbs tv uh on a show, on called, a show called magazine i was their outdoor adventure guy and one day, one of our producers came to us and said, hey, there's this guy, he's doing sharks at the Farallon Islands. Do you want to do a piece on him? And I thought, yeah, heck, why not? I, you know, I've always, uh, always wanted to see a white shark. Why not? So we went out there and, you know, real interesting character. I mean, he was, uh, you know, like an educated quint from Jaws. The best way to describe this guy. Still a scoundrel, but um, <laughs> you know he, he he took our he took us out um, to hopefully see a white shark at, at the Farallons, and that was back in the late '90s when there weren't any rules or regulations out there. And what he was doing is he was towing a seal decoy behind the boat. So you know to set the scene, the Farallons on a good day is a very inhospitable place. Um, you know, they're they're just jagged rocks that come out like rotted teeth out of the Pacific, and they're it, it's it's a it's a foreboding place, and it's 60 miles outside of San Francisco, the San Francisco Gate. Uh, huge population of seals there, uh, elephants, uh, elephant seals, and uh, California sea lions, fur seals. Um, they all hang out there. And of course, giant white sharks are out there as well. So by towing this decoy, the thought was, you know, maybe you could entice one of these giant 18, 19 foot behemoths to attack it. And that would be, you know, your encounter. So the day we went out, it was dark and overcast and miserable. I've, I've done some miserable, like in the, in the last you know 25 30 years i've done some miserable boat work this was the most miserable crossing ever uh to get out there heaving seas and just that that green gray ugly pacific water um got out there still overcast uh now you have the smell of the island kind of wafting over you and we're throwing this decoy out in maybe six, seven foot swells. And, you know, I'd pretty much given up any hope of seeing a white shark. And that's when I saw my first one. The, the, the scene was something out of a movie. The, 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 the overcast had been with us all day long. It showed no signs of breaking. But then all of a sudden it broke. And it broke right over the island. So you had this midday beams of light shooting down through the clouds that was spectacular but at that precise moment with this at least 18 foot 2500 pound female grabs our decoy and like a polaris missile she comes up out of the water and i'm full-on watching this thing happening just just short yards from the boat and she comes up as high, almost out to the uh, the, the bottom of her tail, um, 
and then hovers there for a second and I could I could still see the water dripping down her side with the sun bouncing off of her and she's got this seal decoy deeply embedded in her mouth uh, and then she crashes back in the water you know uh, sets off like a little mini tsunami wave hits the boat and I'm hooked I'm hooked for the rest of my life at that point I'm like this this is the coolest thing ever yeah. I'd forgotten about being seasick I'd forgotten about how miserable it was out there um, and that was the beginning that was the beginning of a very very long storied career with white sharks um, and it's just you know it's the stuff of legend like we were just kids at the time. There was no book. There was no guidebook that said, so you want to be a shark diver. We just we just saw it and went for it. There's, there's a great passion surrounding these critters. And when you first encounter them, it's unlike any other critter that I've ever encountered. You get hooked. Like, you want to see more. And you want to know more. Like, what are these animals doing out here? And why was it that particular seed? seal decor that they were interested in and uh, you know it goes on from there so um a few years later we heard that there were white sharks at Guadalupe Island uh the question that we were all asking ourselves at that time was where's Guadalupe Island? <laughs> like it's it's back in 2000 back in 1999-2000 Guadalupe Island was so far off of anybody's map that it, it was it was the, the 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 old classic like if you look at the maps from the 1200s right there's like land ocean with a couple of sea monsters but always on the edge of the map it, it always said like here be monsters that's what <laughs> that's what Guadalupe was to all of us at that time right it was this map that was like at the very edge of it here be Guadalupe and, and also monsters so in 2000 uh, the first expedition went out there, um, you know, hoping to see a white shark. It's the only other places you could find them. Like, we knew we could find them at, at the Feralos, but a miserable experience, like dive experience for consumers, right? So that really wasn't an optimal place. Um, the other other optimal places were South Australia and South Africa. That was it. That's all we knew about white sharks. And if you were to go to a library, you would find like a couple of thin books, uh, mostly written in the 1970s, um, about white sharks. That's it. So we'd heard that there were white sharks in Lupe because of the tuna fishermen were coming back to San Diego. So we thought, well, why don't we go do an expedition there with Greg Gravetto in the Horizon, uh, the MV Horizon, and just hope to see a white shark. So went with, you know, standard chicken wire cages and far too much beer. Uh, hoping to see a single animal. On their first day, I think they saw five animals and quickly realized the cages were completely undermanned for the task and they hadn't brought enough beer. So fast forward, you know, 22, 23 years later, and it's a going concern. Um, but that, that, that knowledge base from just a bunch of guys who were interested in white sharks and were hoping to see one and really hadn't thought out the whole like, well, what happens if we want to run a commercial operation um, to where we are today has been, you know, the equivalent of uh, watching Elon Musk, um, you know, build his rocket program. 
it, it was that that level of intensity and that level of of learning knowledge as you kind of went along with yeah. iterations of cages and and hookah systems and baiting and the whole nine yards and you know between that point and now a whole lot of fun and adventures and we could probably go on for days the stuff that's happened at lupe over the years just legendary stuff yeah um, but yeah that's that's how we got here yeah and as, as somebody who's fascinated a bit by these animals um like guadalupe island is only kind of come to my attention really within the last 10 years so mm-hmm. obviously year on year you're seeing perhaps more animals out here your your operations are becoming more professional as, as you go along better technology better cages um and has there been any challenges with that now just since since you went out in 2000 to where we are today oh yeah i mean the I mean, challenge challenges are plenty um most of it was learning about the animals and behavior because you know it's one thing that i hadn't really considered when i started um, my company shark diver and we launched you know commercial operations for real uh in 2001 um we hadn't really considered the sharks in this equation i know it sounds funny but at, at the beginning we hadn't we you know we just kind of considered them as as big predators not the charismatic animals that we see today each one's you know had its own distinct personality not uh, a higher order predator that um really is the boss of its ecosystem out there certainly not um as we've come to realize a highly migratory species that is more like a salmon than anything else you know you can yeah. you can you can stand at guadalupe in uh the beginning of june and fire off a starting pistol and they show up and then in january 2nd do the same thing and they all disperse off the island like clockwork so a lot of this stuff we we just hadn't considered in in our in our first year out there we met one of the most charismatic sharks um that it was has ever been to guadalupe a shark by the name of shredder and uh he was a really interesting character because his dorsal fin had looked like it wasn't a classic sickle it actually had these three deep cuts in it and it looks like he'd actually come up on a smaller outboard engine at one point um and got his dorsal fin shredded so we 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 preliminarily named him shredder when we first met him in in 2001 um and just as charismatic as they get like he would come up to the cages and run his pectoral fin along the cage like a kid on a white picket fence with a stick <laughs> <laughs> and he was he was always there and he always had this look about him like hi guys what's up you know like, it just i hate to i hate to like add human emotions to a to a shark but honestly he was more dolphin than anything else and uh our our first year up there i'm up with we we've done our first trip and we were on the last rotation and we're there uh on the blackjack which is the sister ship um she got renamed to the Ocean Odyssey uh and I'm up there with Greg Gravetto and so we got Horizon there and we got Ocean Odyssey and I'm up in the wheelhouse of, on the Ocean Odyssey the cages are in the back it's like 3 in the afternoon the last rotation has been a flawless 
first week out there and we're feeling really good and all of a sudden there's this tremendous explosion of water on the bow and greg and i look at each other and we're like what's going on and so we send we send this little deckhand up you know we send him up to the bow and he runs up to the bow we're still in the wheelhouse looking down and he looks over the side and he starts pulling on the anchor rope and he pulls the anchor rope up and it's severed completely like shredded it, it, it's like somebody put a small explosive on the end of it and just blew it up and he yells up to us he goes captain craig the biggest shark i've ever seen in my life just shredded the anchor cable and then he pauses and he goes and he's still there <laughs> So Greg and I we leap out of the wheelhouse and run down. We look over and guess who's there? Shredder. And he's God. orbiting. He's orbiting around the area where he, he he bit the anchor cable. He just shredded it. So now we've got a 88-foot vessel with two shark cages and a six-knot current heading very quickly into the rocks on the side of Lupe. Not a, not a thing you want to have. And to the to the to the credit of the crew, they got everybody out, cages up, and engines going probably i don't know you know for for dramatic sake i want to say 40 feet from the rocks but it sure felt like that right I mean, yeah. it, was, it was just it was one of those things and and that's an expensive loss that really is that is a huge loss when you lose that much anchor cable your your main anchors the whole nine yards um if that happened on day one, we would have had to turn back but fortunately it was the last day so we we headed out a little early and on the sat phone ordered up new new tackle new gear but in the new tackle new gear we now had another 400 feet of chain on the line uh which we hadn't thought you would have had to have but yeah there it was shredder taught us a lesson um and that that's kind of like the formative stuff of learning about guadalupe right is that these animals can do things that you would least expect it Um sadly Shredder disappeared about 10 years ago. Like he just didn't come back. We had him there. We had him there for almost 8 years like clockwork. He would show up on the exact same week every year and everybody would, you know, cheer Shredder's back. And there was a different energy in the water when Shredder was there. Yeah. Um and then he just never came back, which is highly indicative of uh of the fact that he probably met his demise at the hands of a fisherman somewhere um cuz he just wasn't a very bright shark <laughs> right <laughs> it was more like a golden retriever like if there was things happening he wanted yeah. to know and he would come right up and be like hey what's going on so i you know get almost picture a long landing vessel out there and shredder just like hey guys how are you what's going on so um, yeah Yeah. That that's that's that, that's quite sad to 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 hear that that's probably what has happened but and um, I suppose like just for for the listeners to uh, you know of this episode Guadalupe Island it takes what 16 hours to get out there from, from Ensenada. Yeah, give or take a nickel. Um it's a, it's a it's a it's 210 miles directly from San Diego. Uh, 180 from Ensenada. So, it's a hump to get out there and you're, you know, doing 10 knots on the way there and 10 knots on the way back. Um yeah. plus weather. So, uh depending on the weather, it can be um it can be a lot longer or a lot shorter. Um but yeah, it's about that. 
about that, yeah. So uh, plenty plenty of drink would need to be on board anyway for for your um for, for your tourists and your visitors coming to, to get to know each other on the way out and it's having surpri- a blast. <laughs> surprising surprising like our divers just don't drink a lot out there. Um they it's it's a combination of think of being at sea that far that out for that long. Uh and also yeah. just, you know, the lack of desire to to be in an altered state. Um, but yeah, we, we do we do every once in a while have somebody show up with a 35-year-old age bourbon. Oh, those are good days. Yeah. <laughs> after, after the sharking is done and the sunset is there, you know, sipping on a bourbon is, oh my goodness. Yeah. Yeah. As close to heaven well, as you can possibly get. Well, the, the thoughts of drink now at the moment, Patrick, are... You know, I think I'd start to go green now. I'm just just recovering from from the Labor Day weekend celebration, so <laughs> you know, I think it'll be water all the way from from here on in. Well, for, until the next few days. <laughs> few days, yeah. Labor Day will get you in San Diego every single time. Um, oh yeah. yeah, yeah. But um, Patrick, how many of these great white sharks do we estimate are in Guadalupe Island at any one time? That's a good question. I mean, the one question that I was asking when we first got out there, um, and I was pretty keen on pioneering some kind of research program out there. So I went to an old friend of mine at UC Davis, Dr. Peter Klimley, and uh, reached out to him when we went to Lupe that first year in 2001. And I said, would you like to come out in 2002? And he said, yeah, only if I could bring out Dr. Uh, Felipe Galvan from CCMAR in Mexico, my counterpart. And I said, yeah, absolutely. Um, and, and the reason I wanted those two guys out there was that they together could set up a research program that we could fund uh, with our divers money and we could begin to understand what is going on out here because it's pretty evident after that first season that something pretty special was happening here and unique in the world and uh, there was no knowledge you know, very, very little at that time about what they were doing and nobody was really studying them. So I brought those two guys out there to answer a couple of questions. Um, The first question that I had was, we're looking at a population here of sub-adults and adults. Is this population growing or is this population shrinking? And uh, the follow-up question is, what are they doing here? And, And where are they going? So, so those are the two main questions I wanted to find out, um, which gets to your, your question of, you know, how many sharks are out there? So I remember the very first time that Dr. Klimley and Dr. Galvan jumped in the cage. And I was pretty nervous because I, you know, I didn't know what, I knew these guys were white shark guys, but I didn't know what their, their, their breadth of experience was. And I didn't know if they were going to look at this and go, yeah, we see this all the time here and here. So <laughs> an hour passes and I'm just watching bubbles come out of the cage and Klimley comes out and, you know, he's a man of few words, but he's got a big grin on his face. So I think, okay, we got Klimley from Davis. And then out comes Dr. Galvan. Now Galvan doesn't speak a lot of English. Um, he's, he's, he's a Mexican researcher. And he comes out and I, I roll up to him and I'm like, what do you think, Dr. Galvan? And he looks me right in the eye and all he says is, Ole. <laughs> <laughs> and with that, 
with that statement, I knew we had dealt from CC Mart, so we were in business. And uh, we poured, uh, we poured about a hundred thousand dollars into tagging sharks, and um, they brought on a guy by the name of Maurizio Hoyos. Uh, and Maurizio, at the time, was a graduate student of Dr. Klimley's, but he was he's from Mexico. And he soon, he soon, many years later, became got his PhD and became Dr. Maurizio Hoyos. And the guy is just amazing. Like I, I love this guy. Uh, but at the time, he was, you know, 85-pound graduate student out there doing the hard work, like the really hard work of cataloging sharks and how big they were and what their sex was. And I mean, this guy worked like a dog out there. I've never seen anybody work harder. And with more care um, at Guadalupe than than uh, Dr. Dr. Mauricio Hoyos, um, but he he diligently got into this question of of how many sharks are out here. Um, so fast forward like five or six years later, and we learned four great things. One, I'll get to your question about how many sharks are out there. One is that these sharks migrate in and out like clockwork. Two, they're migrating as far as the Oregon coast and the Sea of Cortez and Hawaii, it turns out, um, which is huge, right? This is a massive uh, um, dispersal of animals into the Pacific. Uh, three, three, that they are feeding uh, primarily on the Guadalupe fur seals and that these attacks or predations are occurring subsurface. So they're actually eating them subsurface um, like pez every night. So they, 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 they follow a diurnal feeding pattern. So the, the Guadalupe fur seal mothers come off the rocks uh, at sunset and they come right back in um, at sunrise. And the white sharks are cruising in, uh, in sometimes in like eight feet of water, um, waiting for them to come off the rocks and just snapping them up. And then the last thing we learned over the over the many years that we've been out there is that the population is around 300 plus, give or take. It's a shifting number, um, but it's a robust number. And then the last thing we learned is that the, the, it looks like the numbers are increasing because just over the last 10 years, we've been seeing an increase in um, uh, sub-adults, but then junior sub-adults, like animals that are four to six foot long little naf naf white shark showing up we're like what are you doing here you know yeah. they usually they usually come up to the point norte bay and they, they look around for a little bit and they're really antsy like you can just they're vibrating they're so antsy because they're they're definitely you know prey size and um they they come in and they sketch out really really quick but seeing those guys out there is is um interesting because in 2000 Eight, or was it 2007? I got invited to a white shark site in New Zealand, um, a little tiny place called Stewart Island. So, if you're standing on Stewart Island and you fire a cannon south, you're going to hit Antarctica. Like it's it's remote. Um, the next island over Tasmania. So, Stewart Island is is super remote, New Zealand, and. Uh, just off of Stewart Island are a pile of rocks and around those rocks is a huge population of white sharks and when I went down there the only experience I'd had 
Farallons, which is predominantly giant sharks. So you just don't see any sub adults there. I never saw any sub adults or ever heard of any、yeah. sub adults. I'm sure they're there, but、um, they're just giant sharks there. Then you go to Lupe, which is kind of a mixed bag of、uh, sub adults and adults. But when I got to New Zealand, I saw a vertically integrated population of white sharks for the first time. Young of the year, sub adults, adults, all mixed in, all hanging out, all being cool with each other in the same site. And that caught, that threw me for a loop.、Um, because the question I was asking is is this actually what a healthy white shark population looks like? Is the one we're looking at at Guadalupe truncated? Is the one we're looking at the Farallines a. A dying population, meaning that there's only adults there, super adults. And, and, and if there aren't any juveniles out there, does that mean that this population is on its way to extinction? Right? So, what is the truth of what does a population, a white shark population matrix look like? Does it vary between sites? I mean, this is where my mind goes anytime I, I get into、uh, seeing these animals and start. Like asking all these great research questions, like what what is going on here? So, yeah, the population of White Guadalupe is growing, which is good. It's being replenished, which is good.、Um, but unfortunately, the the fact that Guadalupe is so well known, as you've just said, you know, you heard about it ten years ago, without. Having a long-term monitoring program there, I, be it either research vessels or、uh, like the commercial vessels that were there, I fear that site is primed to get harvested、um, because those animals are worth a lot of money,、uh, both in Mexico and abroad. I was I was just in Thailand and saw a set of jaws, probably coming from an 18, 19 foot animal,、uh, and white shark fins, and the, the jaws were selling for twenty thousand dollars in Bangkok. Which was which was sad, yeah.、Uh, but they're unmistakable. White shark jaws are absolutely unmistakable. The dentition is un- unmistakable. Yeah, those those triangular serrated teeth.、Um, they're, they're the only species that has them. And, yeah.、Uh, they only get triangular when they're big.、Um, so adult sharks have triangular teeth. The the juveniles have、uh, piscivore teeth. They they they're they they're feeding on fish. So they're kind of—they're more like mako teeth almost.、Um, but as they get older, they get wider at the base, and it's that classic, you know, white shark tooth. So that—that、yeah. that is a concern、uh, for that site for sure. That that they that the adults be hunted just for their teeth and. Yeah, yeah, and, and their fins. I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a good bet、um, to say without. Long-term monitoring that site becomes a big target for somebody. Look, the, the North Bay up there is so full of white sharks that you know, a guy with a stout rod, a great big hook, and a shotgun could clean up in in a week up there. And that's a, that's a very sad、um, situation. And you know, that's that's a that's a huge concern,、um, especially after we've been up there for so many years. And got to know this resource and the animals as well as we have.、Um, you know what? It, what will be the future of this biosphere preserve out there of Guadalupe? Yeah, and there's a lot of information there, Patrick.、Um, I mean, I, I guess you know my next couple of questions could kind of take us in all different directions, but.、Um, 
my next question would have been just on the um, the sub adults because I had always felt that or always thought at least that the the young white sharks would primarily hang out around the shores the the, the shallow shores of California mm-hmm. is that is that ne- that's not necessarily true though from what you're saying they're they're actually found out now in Guadalupe Island yeah it's interesting you know as much as we think we know about like look when we first got out there the big book of white sharks um was as thin a tome as you could possibly imagine right it had like maybe three pages on it you know this is what we know about them today uh the big book of pacific white sharks is is as thick as the lord of the rings trilogy (laughs) and at the end right is is this great blank section that says more to come and so just when we think we got it all dialed in what just when we think that their life cycle is oh yeah they they pop off the coast of california the pups live there year round until they get to a certain age and then they all migrate over to guadalupe and they start having sex and then they pop out more pups later on um then all of a sudden the young of the year shows up at guadalupe and we're like what is going on you know <laughs> you know what is a young of the year white shark doing here um did it migrate here did it get born here what is going on the, the transitional sub-adults not not surprising to see them at Guadalupe because they are transitioning into adulthood, right? They're very, very close to becoming old enough to actually breed and mate and do all those things. And so they have to fight for position. So they're being drawn to Guadalupe a few years before they're actually ready. Uh, But in the meantime, there's an all-you-can-eat buffet out there, right? There's tuna, there's uh, yellowtail, uh, there's Guadalupe fur seals, there's uh, California sea lions, there's um, uh, elephant seals. And and if you're an animal that uh, is pretty much done eating fish and wants to start transitioning into seal meat, this is a great place to, to hone your craft if you will, um, before you head back, you know, on the migration to wherever, whatever point you're going to go to. So it's, it's not like they become adults off the California coast and suddenly show up at Guadalupe. There is a long transition there from being piscivores to meat eaters to, okay, we're ready to breed now. And in that block of time, they migrate to Guadalupe a few times, um, to check things out. Usually what happens in Point Norte is that the males show up first, the sub-adult males, and they're there for a few months. And then as the water temperatures change in October and November, um, the males have pretty much sorted each other out. Like we'll start seeing it in, in mid-September to late September, males showing up with terrific bite marks on them, like terrific bite marks. Um, great and they usually go for the gill area just huge bites and tears and rends and we've actually seen it a few times where sharks have been bitten right in front of the cage and these are male-on-male violence and basically what they're saying is look i'm the dominant male you can bugger off i'm i'm here waiting for the females to show up um and honestly after a few good bites those that aren't going to be breeding head down south of the island to a place we call loser beach and they all hang out down there um, by the time the temperature changes in October uh, and the big female females start showing up, all that's left are breeding age males up there. 
And uh, we call that period of time October, November, and the beginning of December, the time of the Titans. Um, and these girls are, are there for business. I mean, there's a definite energy difference from the early part of the season where you've got all these males and there's lots of crackling energy in the water and they're sipping all over the place and leaping out of the water to when uh, an honest to goodness 18 foot female shows up and they they are cool calm collected calculating uh real interesting characters um they take a long time to come to the surface they check everything out they spend a, an inordinate amount of time checking things out and once they feel comfortable then they spend an inordinate amount of time checking out the divers and it, it can get uncomfortable um that eyeball if you want to make a fist with your hand and put another fist on top of that that's about the size of a 18 foot female Gosh. yeah and, and it <laughs> rotates in the socket right it's got full range of motion and they will cruise by the cage with eight divers cages and i've watched that eyeball rotate lock on to a diver and track that diver as she's moving by and then swing forward and catch the next diver and and, and, and honestly i've been in the cage happened to me and it's like time stops you feel that connection with that animal like it it is it is uh in a lot of cases if it's an overcast day and the water's a little gray it could be completely unnerving because we spend <laughs> we spend human beings spend their entire lives marveling at our own magnificence right we have opposable thumbs we are the highest order organism on the planet right now i mean i wake up in the morning and i say hey alexa Set the, set the air conditioning to 76 when it happens. I go downstairs. I tell my coffee maker to start. It Coffee pours out of it. I mean, we're constantly reminded of our own magnificence, right? You get into an, yeah. an electric vehicle and there you are, the height of technology at your fingertips. Um, that all gets reset when you are face-to-face -face in a cage with an animal that big who's checking you out. And she's yeah. not checking you out because she's just mildly curious. She's seriously checking you out. Are you prey? What exactly are you? I'm terribly interested in your antics, right? And and you're the one in a cage. Yeah. <laughs> That's something that kind of gets you. <laughs> Suddenly you realize, oh my God, I'm in a cage. <laughs> I mean, we, we we talk about going to the zoo where where the animals are caged. Well, yes. we, we've that now when you go in the water and. You know, we're the you ones flip, you flip you, you your your script gets flipped entirely and yeah. uh i i will be honest with you i don't like diving in november personally i just i get unnerved very very quickly um by by these big girls and and i am so happy that they're there you know um they are they are a true testament to a healthy ecosystem uh, and they've been around. I mean, the, 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 the conventional wisdom, we don't really know how old they are because uh, they're mostly made out of cartilage. Um, but we, we hazard to guess that these, some of these girls can be as old as 70 years old. Um, yeah. And that's, that's a long time to be in an ocean filled with hooks, you know? Yeah. And that's why they're so cautious. And that's why there's a different uh, countenance, countenance females entirely. Um, they're not like these males who are just zipping around and biting on everything. They are just so cautious. 
yeah. about everything, and they they want to make sure that everything is just right before they decide they're going to make a move. Um, yeah. And when they do, it's usually devastating to whatever they're going to make a move on. They're they they've become, you know, perfect hunters. As they're much larger than their their male counterparts. You know? Um. Yeah. Yeah. They are. I mean, the males the males get up there and they get beefy, but the females get girthy. Like really girthy. Like I drive an FJ Cruiser that's lifted by three inches. So if you're ever at a parking lot, you look over and see a Toyota FJ Cruiser. Some of our females are as big as that around, um, and that's sizable. You know, that's that's big. That's that's almost mind-numbingly big. And especially when you see them come up from the bottom, because they usually do a vertical ascent, very slow. So you you because of their counter shading. What you first see in the dark, gloomy depths, five hundred feet down, you see the white jaw, and it, it's just kind of like a smile almost down there. The yeah. white smile, and it gets closer and closer. And as it gets closer, you suddenly start to see the outline of the head. And, and in a scenario like that, your your mind starts to warp because the head is is way too big. Right? It's not like any of the heads you've been watching for the past four hours with these male sharks. This is something new. This is something different. This is something, you know, completely different.、Um, and then when they finally show up, you're just in awe of it all. And 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 it, you know, I think that's one of the draws for people to come during the time of the Titans is to be able to be in awe of something that big in the water, knowing full well that that's also a predator. Absolutely, I mean, Patrick. I waited twenty years to、uh, go to South Africa and see the see these white sharks. I, I left disappointed.、Um, they didn't show up. Twenty seventeen, but more recently now, we've、uh, unfortunately had a closure of the biosphere. Yeah. Can Can you tell us,、um, you know, some of the events that have、um, led to the biosphere being closed? Yeah, I mean it's it's necessary. It's sad. It's frustrating. It's 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 a lot of things. So when I went way way back when we did that first trip to Guadalupe, I remember telling everybody on the back deck at the time. I said we're standing on the world's greatest white shark site, commercial white shark site, and there was a few scoffs and a few you know. Laughs and people said stuff like, you know, no one's going to want to travel 210 miles to go see white sharks. We're we're just the crazy bunch that would. And I had a vision for this because I'd been in tourism for years. I'd also been in film and TV as well, so I knew what this site held or what the potential of the site. And the one thing that I added to that comment, I said, if we can do it sustainably, right? And and and. That was that was the big question. Can we do it sustainably? Now, sustainability in ecotourism all around the world has proven devilishly hard. In in theory, it, it's an easy thing. In practice, especially when you have multiple operators, it it becomes more challenging because not every operator comes to the table with the same sensibilities or the same. Curiosity for the animals, or the same anything. In point of fact, quite often you just get a a flat out cold calculation of cash, right? I can take this many divers, and I can make this much money, 
and wash, rinse, repeat, you know. And so over the years at Guadalupe, um, it, it's, it's getting, I guess, I guess the site's kind of getting loved to death. And, and this is a very common refrain for a lot of, of sites around the world, not just Guadalupe, but it's, it's happened pretty much everywhere that I've, I've ever seen. No white shark site, no shark site that I've ever encountered, uh, even in the Bahamas, which has had essentially the easiest route with sharks. Um, but I, I can tell you stories of Hawaii where they were threatening to burn boats down. I mean, all shark sites have had their, their, their growing pains. But usually after 22 years, those growing pains are, are, are sorted out and you're in business and you're, you're sustainable. Guadalupe is going through a major growing pain right now. Um, the Mexican government has seen fit to close the island down so they can conduct a top to bottom review of the operations and the sustainability question. Um, and it's been a two-pronged issue. Uh, one of them, and, and, and again, it goes to the film and television side, Guadalupe has become the hottest site for Shark Week shows. Um, and, you know, I used to be an ex-producer for Shark Week and did a bunch of shows and a bunch of stuff with them. And, you know, I, like many other of the old gang, lament where, where Shark Week went um, to more entertainment and actual science um, but I would say specifically for Guadalupe, there have been probably four or five, and, and I'll, I'll use this term carefully, loathsome production companies who have come there and done stunts with sharks, like really bad stunts with sharks. And that's not what we're here for. You know, you wouldn't go to the Goma National Forest with the lowland mountain gorillas and throw a saddle on one. Uh, for a TV show. You just wouldn't, right? But, yeah. you know, at Guadalupe, uh, creating a cage that's made out of uh, plastic, see-through plastic, for the express purpose of having a 17-foot female smash through it and try to get at the diver, um, that seems to be okay. And, you know, I'm in the minority now, unfortunately, but I'm here to say that's not okay. And if you see that on TV, you need to call it out for what it is. That stunts with sharks. That's not science. That's not anything. That's just cheap ratings. Um, and it comes from a lack of imagination, right? It's severe lack of imagination. It's just producers who uh, have realized that they can get away with it at Guadalupe. So I think that angered the Biosphere staff immensely. Um, you know, they are under they are under a United Nations charter because it is a biosphere, and they're they've been made to look like fools because periodically Shark Week pumps out, you know, a terrifically bad show featuring, uh, you know, circus clowns doing terrible things with white sharks. So that's one thing. But then going to the sustainability on the commercial side, we've had a number of um, really you know, tragic events with sharks out there. And there is a learning curve with these animals. And I get that. And we put, we went through it 22 years ago. But once you learn, you should be able to find sustainability. And so, you know, with these events that have happened, I think it's time that the, I think the, the Mexican government has finally said, right, we're, we've, we've seen the videos. We're aware that something is wrong here. We're going to take a breather this year. 
while we put a team on this to really ask the question, is it sustainable? Can we, can we operate out there in a way that periodically circus clowns from Shark Week don't show up and do terrible things to sharks? And then can we operate out there where operators are all following the same script? That the animals are kept safe, that the divers are kept safe. Um, and that's, and that's going to be a question that they're going to have to answer, you know, as time moves on, you know, I, I work with a boat out there. So, you know, I, I, whatever I say can always be looked through the lens of, oh, you're just trying to get more business or that's not the lens that, that I bring to this. I bring to this as a guy who's been out there for 22 years, who has seen it all, um, who has come to love this research. who has poured a lot of his own personal money into uh research efforts out there to understand more about these animals so you know when i come to the table and i say things it carries a little bit more weight than you know some dive master who just got out there you know four years ago and thinks he's some kind of hot shot he's not yeah. so, <laughs> you know he's instagram famous that's all he is yeah he hasn't paid his dues he hasn't, he hasn't, he hasn't put in the effort um, and doesn't uh, he doesn't realize what the what the what the site is, and we'll probably go on to discover oh I don't know manta rays you know in the Seychelles and become Instagram famous for the manta rays, but that's what's going on right now. I, it troubles me greatly, and it and it hurts my heart because ultimately we're there for those animals. You know when I when I had my own company before I sold it, I often said to my crew members, you know. You may think that you're here for the shark divers, but you're not. They can take care of themselves. We're here for the animals. And every single day we wake up, we have to remind ourselves that we make a pretty good living with these animals, not from these animals, but with these animals. So the question is that you should be asking is, what are we doing for them today, right? We're figuring out a new way to scrub the boat where we're not putting in phosphates into the water. Are we figuring out a new way to chum that we don't have to use beef blood? Are we figuring out a new way, you know, a, a new cage system so the sharks don't get stuck in cages? What are we doing today? Always have your mind working to another solution, another iteration where we can get to true sustainability. Because if we could pull it off here, then we become a beacon for the rest of the world. Um, and so, yeah, you know, 22 years later, Mexico shuts it down. It hurts my heart that we're actually at this point that Mexico has to ask those questions. You would have thought that some smart guys and smart gals could have figured it out all by themselves. But now the Mexicans are asking, why is it that some smart guys and smart gals out there can't figure this stuff out? It's not rocket science. There is a science to it. But why can't they figure it out so they're taking a hiatus and uh hopefully knock on wood they will come to the same realization that i have and many others that sustainability can happen at guadalupe that we can do this right um you know i'm all about a film and tv board that has at least two researchers on it and at least one executive producer from mexico on it and that you have to submit scripts to uh, film at Guadalupe. And then, sorry kids, but you have to have a Mexican Biosphere staff member who's there with the script with you. And if you happen to just show up with a clear cage, 
uh, with a crazy idea that you're going to throw it out there with a 17-foot female, um, hoping that somebody gets bit, uh, you you lose your production and you yeah. never come back, right? It's, nope. it's that simple. But yeah. look, a lot of my friends, it's it's so funny. Like a lot, a lot of my friends in the in the in the tourism world, like when you see this all the time, no matter where you go, right? You're on a ferry boat going up to Alaska. And you're standing on the top deck, and there's a sign there that says "Danger! Don't leap off the top deck." <laughs> and you always ask yourself, "Why the hell is that sign up there?" I mean, it's, isn't it pretty bloody obvious that you like wouldn't want to leap off the top deck, <laughs> right? But there's a sign, and you have to understand that at some point, some asshole jumped off the top deck. Probably yeah. to get a selfie, or, or you know, you know, something equally mind-numbingly stupid, but it caused a reaction. It caused yeah. the boat owners to say, "We have to put up a sign now," and that's that's been my my greatest kind of realization about the whole ecotourism thing, is that you would think that it's easy to do this stuff. You would think that you can run a sustainable operation without getting sharks in cages or shenanigans, but yet it can't be. That's the sad part for me. That、yeah. the Mexican government has to get involved, and and they have to put the heavy hand down, and they have to disappoint thousands of divers from around the world who have booked in good faith to come out this year and have this experience and be educated by these sharks. It's just it's. All that, all that beauty and joy, gets taken away,、um, and that's sad. And then the sharks themselves are put at risk because they're out there with nobody watching them, all because we just couldn't get it together. The film and TV guys couldn't get it together. A few ecotourism guys couldn't get it together, and now we're here. So that's the bad news. The good news is I'm an eternal optimist. And I have to be, and I've been that way my entire life. And I believe that they are going to realize that hey, this is a good thing, and there's a lot more good than bad. We just have to codify a lot of this stuff and put up a sign. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. You know. Just put up a put sign, up and, and, and if you if you jump off the top deck, guess what? There are going to be consequences this time. Um, yeah, you know, but this this、so. been coming for 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 years, Patrick. I mean, we've seen we've seen the videos,、um, and look, I'm here in San Diego. I was supposed to board Horizon Charters last Thursday, last Friday. Yeah, and、um, look, you know, I got wind of that there might be, you know, that the season might be closed back in July. We got confirmation of that then in early August.、Um, To be honest, Patrick, I was kind of relieved in a sense because、um, you know there's there's that will it won't it how do I organise myself part of it too,、mm. but then you know again when you look at the decision, I do agree with you. I I, I think that there could be lessons learned、uh, from this.、Uh, we could be looking at the the spec of the cage. Do we go out with better cages that protect divers and the sharks?、Um, What can we do differently? But yeah,、uh, you, yeah. you you mentioned some really good points there that there should be biosphere staff on these boats. It should be supervised. Should be no shenanigans. 
we're, we're here to see these sharks, to observe them, to learn about them. So, you know, look, it's, it is it is unfortunate for me, for my own personal experience, but when I think about the wider picture, you can see how they came to that decision. Yeah, yeah. And look, to a credit to you and to all of the other divers that I've encountered this year that came out with us or were going to come out with us, everybody took this with you know, their own personal grain of salt. You know, they pinched their noses and they swallowed it down, but they all came back and said, right, we want to come out in 2023, which is the, the real, the thing that we talked about at the very beginning, you know, when I saw my first white shark and it was almost a religious moment, the, 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 the skies parting and the, light, <laughs> the beams of light on the shark and I was hooked for the rest of my life. This is the power of this site and these animals that people, unlike any other trip that they will ever do, they're willing to say, if it's for the sharks and it's for the betterment of these animals, I'm coming back next year, we're gonna do this thing. And and I love that sense of adventure because this goes back to the core of where I came from and how I grew up in the, in the tourism world is authentic adventures are the best. They're the ones, the ones that I seek out. You know, there's very few places on this planet, sadly, where you can go and it's at, at the edge of that map that says, here be monsters. And that's where I travel. When I go, that's where I go. <laughs> I look yeah. at the great big map and if I see any big cities on it, I'm like the other direction. I want to find that place that's authentic. And Guadalupe for me is that place. It is so remote. If you stood on the top of Guadalupe Island with a high powered cannon and fired it west, as the sun sets, the next island over is Japan. That's how far away it is. Actually, in between there is is um, Marshall Island. The currents keep washing up conga boats from Mexico there. It's really bizarre. We did a we did a show there years ago for Shark Week called Nuclear Sharks. I'd always wanted to go to Bikini Atoll in the Marshall Islands. Um, that place is storied history, but it's where the U.S. tested most of its nukes from the 50s all the way into the 70s. Um, they did tons and tons of nuke tests at Bikini Atoll specifically. Um, some of the most spectacular video you're ever going to see of ships blowing into the air, like aircraft carriers, and they did it all. They were like kids in a candy store. But the question I asked was, how did the reef sharks survive 23 nukes and one hydrogen bomb? The Castle Bravo shot, which was a monster. Now, they, they totally miscalculated that shot and ended up blowing up two of the bases at Bikini um, and creating a fireball so big that the Marshallese 120 miles away said that the sun rose in the east and the west that morning. <laughs> That's how big that, that was. So I asked, how do these little reef sharks survive? Because the common thought was little reef sharks live, die, and breed on the same reef. They never leave their reefs. And it makes sense, right? You've got a little six-foot animal it certainly wouldn't be migrating to another atoll uh, 250 nautical miles away in 10,000 feet of water, right? That's almost pelagic behavior. So how did they survive? So we tagged a bunch of them with these satellite tags and they were extended satellite tags um, to see where they were going. And the, they had these um, little solar panels on the side of them. They were a next gen. Like most satellite tags, you put them on, they've got a lithium ion battery that dies out in about you know two to six months if you're lucky. This 
satellite um, tag had a solar panel that would extend its life. So as long as the sun was hitting this thing for a while, it could extend, which gave us a year, maybe two years. That was the thought. Anyway, so we tagged a bunch of these animals and we found out that uh, a bunch of them were migrating from atoll to atoll. And then we also found out that fin harvesters had come in a couple of weeks after we'd been there and snagged a bunch of our sharks. And I guess what had happened was the fishermen brought these sharks up and found these really cool items tagged on the side of them and put them on a lanyard and wore them around their necks. <laughs> because we had, we had almost a year and a half of data showing these things migrating all the way from Bikini Atoll to uh, this, little, <clears throat> this little fishing port in the Philippines, like a thousand nautical miles away. And they did a stop in Guam which was really cool because I called the, the, the fish and wildlife in Guam because it's a U.S. territory and had them raid the boat. And what they had discovered is that their entire cargo, fish hold cargo, had been packed up and put on planes and already flown out. So they had been fishing at Bikini, went to Guam, dumped their cargo there. That, I guess, went to China. And then the boats went back to the Philippines to recharge, repair, and then they started it all over again. Um, but what was the point of me telling you the story? Well, There's something here. <laughs> Sorry, I just went on a total tangent. <laughs> my my apologies. <laughs> well, that's okay. That's okay. But I mean, you 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 mentioned that uh, with the re sharks that um, you found that they've they only move. You know, which they don't move off their reefs. But going back to, to Guadalupe Island, you um, we we're, were talking a number of weeks ago, and um, at the moment you're running a, a project there with um, a satellite program. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Ah, uh, no, no, I can't. You can't. Okay, well that's that's all right. That's all right. Well, uh, we'll, do, um, we'll leave we'll leave that one. We'll leave, we'll that, leave, one, we'll leave that one sitting where it is. We'll now. leave that there. We'll park that there. Yeah. Um, Patrick, let's, what about? Let's, let's put it this way: we're 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 curious. We've always been curious, and our team has always played with technology. So, if there's technology available to us, we're always going to utilize it as we can. Um, and and I'm I've, I always want answers to questions, and we have a lot of questions right now. And whatever answers we can get to them, we'll we'll do. So um, yeah, yeah, yeah. We're we're an active team, and we do. We do some neat stuff, so we're in the, still in the process of doing some neat stuff. Yeah. Got a question I have for you, Patrick. Um, cage diving in the US—it's not really a thing, if at all. No. How come? It... Well, well, the the places that you can do it, like off the coast of California. The waters off the coast of California are mostly treacherous. Um, you know, for example, today, uh, perfect example, there's a very large tropical storm bordering on a hurricane that has just skipped over the, 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 the Baja coast and is heading pell-mell right up to San Diego and uh, Guadalupe, right? It's, it's heading our way. 
Um, that, that's not a good place to be running operations right now off the coast and won't be for the next two weeks. It's just going to stir up all the waters. Um, so it makes it very, very difficult commercially to do that. Additionally, off the coast of California, you have many, many, many different use groups. You've got surfers, you've got paddle boarders, you've got, and then you've got a lot of like myths still surrounding white sharks. And one of them is that if you're baiting sharks or provisioning sharks, you're training them to kill people. Now you can see how the cause and effect might happen because every single year off the California coast, there's usually one to three pretty good substantial attacks by white sharks. Um, and I use that term in the actual proper manner. They are attacks. The animals are mistakenly attacking a surfboard or a swimmer thinking that they are a seal, but it is a full predation attack. That's what it is. Usually after the first bite, they're like, well, that's not a seal. Blech. And they move on. <laughs> um, but with those three, if you were off the coast provisioning sharks, you can see how people will do a causal effect and go, well, they're obviously training them to attack surfers. So that becomes an issue where wherever you have multiple use groups using an, a resource with those animals, sharks in general, you're going to get conflict. So you want to stay away from conflict. That's kind of like 101 of shark diving. Um, then you, the next place would be Florida. And you know, Florida preemptively in the 90s um, put out a, a law. And Florida is a land of laws. Um, but you want to talk about a land where there's signs, that's Florida. <laughs> <laughs> do not I jump mean, off boats. <laughs> yeah, do not jump off boats. That is writ large. I mean, that should be like Florida's moniker, right? Welcome to Florida. Do not jump off boats. Um, they, they will either put out preemptive laws or they'll do laws based on what Florida man is doing this week, which is usually something gobstoppingly stupid. Um, and so they preemptively in the nineties, shut the whole thing down. You can do it in the Gulf stream and a few brave operators are going out there. And I think there's a case to be had that eventually they'll allow it. Um, but right now Florida is such a hotbed of just ridiculous rulemaking that you know, I doubt they will be. So those are the only <clears throat> two places. And if you go to the East Coast, you can get out into the Gulf Stream again. Um, sorry, not the Gulf Stream, uh, out in the Atlantic area there. And there's a few like Joe Romero is doing a great job with blues and poor beagles and think basking sharks. He's out there. Yeah. Um, but it's tough. It's a tough gig because it's the Atlantic, right? So yeah. There are so very few special places in the world. Fiji's one of them. Um, the Bahamas is one of them. Guadalupe is one of them. South Australia is one of them. Um, Stewart Island, unfortunately, was badly managed from day one and uh, got shut down and now reopened. But who knows where Stewart Island is going to go. But it had the chance to be a great one. There's another couple of sites that could become great. Um, but they are remote and they would take a heavy lift to get going. Um, Guadalupe was probably a five-year heavy lift before it became um, the site that it is today, you know, but it was five years of just slogging. You know, I remember, I remember going to the Patty offices on our first year. I walked right in. I sat down at their big, huge desk. Oh, it's a big office desk, like conference desk. And there were six patty executives there 
and I sat down and I said, hey guys, and I showed them all the pictures. We found this site in Guadalupe. We're cage diving with white sharks. We'd love to get your support. And the ex-CEO at the time said, hold that thought, went to the back room, pulled out this wicked looking knife and threw it on the table. And he goes, that's called a shark knife. <laughs> he, said, he said to me, Patty doesn't do sharks. And I remember these things. And I think any diver will. Any time you dove in the 70s, 80s, and 90s, there was always some group or single guy who showed up with this thing that's strapped to his calf, right? It was probably about 10 inches long. <clears throat> and, and it was there to protect them just in case on that Caribbean reef you were on, you know, a mean-spirited reef shark showed up. You could just whip it out and I don't know what you would do with it, but they would call them shark knives. And so that was back then, that was 2000. Um, that was Patty's attitude. And today, if you go to Patty magazine, you know, the cover of it will be top 10 places to dive naked with sharks. You know, they have done an amazing um, uh, growth, if you will. So. The, the industry itself, the shark diving industry, is constrained by three things. You know, proximity to sharks, sustainability, and use groups. That's it. Um, and if you, could, if, you can, if you can get the first two, you can usually work with the use groups if you do it right. Um, but it's, it's, a devilish, it's a devilish combination. And I'll be honest, the, the guys who first got into the industry 22 years ago were not the wisest sorts of guys. <laughs> I mean, we can spend another hour talking about the rogues gallery of guys who, who wanted to own shark, shark, shark uh, companies. I mean, they were just underwater welders or you know, dock rats or, you know, they were, they were guys who were big on vision, uh, but short on dollars and cents, you know, and at the end of the day for them, it was all about being recognized. It was all about being able to go to a dive show and have people go, Hey, that's the shark guy. You know? <laughs> it was a very yeah. kind of like 1970s New York leisure suit wearing gold chain kind of thing. <laughs> right? Except the gold the chain gold had chain. a giant shark tooth on it. They were like, hey, I'm a shark diver. And I, I always I always looked at that like, God, really? This yeah. is it? And I've seen that all over the world. Like I've, I've consulted to six different companies. And I've only seen two of the six that managed to do it right. The other four are now consigned to the, you know, trash heap of history uh, because they didn't. I mean, for them, it was all about, you know, beers at the bar afterwards. You're like, yeah, I'm a shark diver. You know, it was oh so seedy. So that's it. That's that's another component to this. If you're gonna do this, are you coming to this with, you know, a proper tourism background? Are you coming to this with a sense of humility? Um, a sense, a real sense of, you know, the, 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 just the sheer depth of what it takes to take care of the place that you are now making money from. Because once you're engaged, it's like getting pregnant and having a kid, right? You have to stay engaged. You can't, you yeah. can't just skip out and say, yeah, you know, it's been, it's a good three year run, man. Woo. That was great. No, you, you gotta stay with it. Yeah. You have yeah. to be 
part of it because you have opened a can of worms and set a course of action for those animals in that site that are, are irretrievably changed by your presence there. And so you've got to keep going with it. So that's, you know, where the, the global shark diving community is. And I, I'm kind of sad for it in a way because a lot of it is just Instagram kids these days who think that if they can just dive in, take a couple of pretty pictures of them with bikinis with sharks and then post that on the internet, that's conservation, right? It's not, you know, $100,000 of your own money into a research program, that's conservation right pulling pulling data out that's conservation um changing <clears throat> attitudes or struggling to get sustainability that's conservation so where does the shark with the global shark industry go from here who knows uh, it, it 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 is a force to be reckoned with 22 years ago it wasn't um today it is and it's it's either ours to win or lose where we go from here but there's still a couple of great white shark sites that are left and it is my great hope that one of these days somebody who's a lot younger than me <laughs> will will take the hard one knowledge from the sites that have worked and open up there and get that sustainability get that thing happening the rest of the world can look to and say wow they're doing it right yeah i mean because you're looking at um I, i'm looking at a case in point south africa and um you know, I'm, I'd be, uh, you know, friend, friends with uh, Sarah Andrati. I've, I've done a podcast episode with her, and uh, I was only she's talking. Great. Yeah, she is. Um, she's so very passionate about um, the, the research down there. She's running a, an intern program, the Sharkwise Project. I was talking to her there about a fortnight ago, and. Uh, you know, you're always mentioning like the places around the world where great white shark uh, tourism or hotspots are. I kind of feel like South Africa is going to get rubbed off the board. As uh, Sarah has told me that they estimate that there's only four to six individuals, individual great white sharks in Hansby, mm. where mm. whereas in one single day they might have seen twenty. Yep. yep. Um, yeah. so it's very sad. I, I think that there's uh, there, there's lessons to be learned there with uh, long line fishing seems to be an issue, um, and uh, their numbers keep dwindling. Sarah told me as well that the uh, the breeders are less and less. Um, and then when you have those those factors, you know, there's a bit of nature kicking in there, like with orcas have displaced them, scared them off, uh, predated on them, so. Yeah, um, I, I definitely think that re there has to be some research going in there, and we have to do this wisely. And uh, we have to keep a site like uh, Guadalupe Island uh, sustainable for tourism, mm -hmm. sustainable for, for these white shark populations. Yeah, there's also yeah, there's a researcher down there, Alison Towner, who I cannot say enough about, um, who has been, that's her PhD, is on those two killer whales who are whacking sharks left right and center and she's also hot on this you know raising the bandwidth on the fact that it's a it's a dual um it's a dual threat to these sharks the long liners are obviously having an impact but the few that are left on the inshore are getting whacked by these killer whales um so you know she's she's been raising this conversation and and as as best she can but 
Yeah, I mean, things are things are tough for white sharks right now. They really are. Actually, for the entire ecosystems of the ocean are really tough right now. We'll see, you know, what the next 10 years bring. I will say this, just on an observational basis, the sharks at Guadalupe seem to be growing in numbers, which is heartening to see. And I think it has a lot to do with uh, 20 years ago. California banned inshore longlining on the California on the California coast. Washington did the same. Um, Oregon did the same as well. And so that essentially protected the entire coastline and the young of the year sharks, these these ones that are getting bred at Guadalupe and pupped along the California coast, that saved them or protected them from a major threat <laughs> that was wiping them out. So this this pulse of new sharks that we're seeing that comes in could well be the net fruit from 20 years ago. Um, it's just observational. There's no actual data, but we are seeing a growth, a sustainable growth in population, it looks like, which is great. The sad part about Guadalupe is that the concentration of sharks that are there puts them at great risk because they're in Point Norte in huge numbers. And, you know, like I've always said, a guy with a stout rod and a shotgun and a a serious demeanor could take out you know half of the breeding population in one season um and and that's not out of the realm of possibility i'm not saying that that mexico is negligent i'm not saying that mexicans are um you know are, it's nothing to disparage them it's just a a tacit acknowledgement that there is a value proposition in that north bay and very little oversight and our vessels that were there provided that oversight for free um and that was a good thing that was a net benefit positive you know <clears throat> but mexico just doesn't have the resources right now to put a boat and a crew up there for six months they don't you know and, and yeah. i wish they did um but they don't so there's no there's no oversight so that all that could go away and of course in two years you know if they shut the island down like they did cedros and benitos um it's it's a different story and that's the entire eastern pacific breeding population of white sharks as far as we know they don't go anywhere else to breed as far as we know you know maybe the farallons maybe um but it's definitely guadalupe like that's that's determined for sure they're breeding there in big numbers so to lose that site, to have that site collapse, to have that site fished out um, would be catastrophic for the entire coast of California, Oregon, uh, Washington, Sea of Cortez, and Hawaii, big chunks of Hawaii. And, and it, it would take 70 years, you know, to get a breeding age animal as big as Lucy, as big as Big Mama, as big as Deep Blue, you know, that's a long time. And the things in the ocean are not getting any better in that 70 year period. So we're at this inflection point, I feel, uh, all observational, like no data, right? It's just running strictly observational. But I think we're at real inflection point here. Yeah. That, that we've started something like we talked about. We started something 22 years ago that has now reached a point where our presence there is not only needed, but demanded. We have to maintain a presence there. We can't now just walk away and say, we're done here. So the ticket to get back in is that sustainability side. 
and we'll get there. Yeah, and that that is the the future of conservation right there for for great white sharks along the east, the west coast. Um, Patrick, here's something for you now, and I'm I'm kind of going to veer back closer to home, where I'm from, I'm from the the Western Atlantic, as you know. And if you're looking at a map of the world, you can kind of draw a line down the east coast of America, all the way down to the mid mid Atlantic Ridge. Down to Spain, Portugal, Spain, down the African coast, all the way down to South Africa, South America. But there's that line kind of around Ireland and the UK and Northern Europe, uh, north of the Bay of Biscay, where there are no great white sharks. And um, it's it's been established that um, the ocean conditions there um, are actually mirroring uh, what's happening in South Africa, the Farallone Islands. Um, you know, do you have any theories yourself, perhaps as to why we mightn't have great white sharks around Ireland and the UK? I have no I have idea. No. That's a really good question. I mean, you've got, you've got massive PU pressure there, and I know that the poor beagle sharks and other shark species are uh, in severe decline. Um, you've got European Union, you've got uh, uh, Asia. Um, that, that whole area gets fished hard. I mean, the, the, the basking sharks in Ireland are just coming back now from the slaughter of World War II. Their livers were uh, so rich in oil that at one point, you know, tanks that were being driven into Europe in World War II were using basking shark oil mixture in their crank shafts. Believe it or not, they hunted those things to the brink of extinction, and it's taken them this long to come back. I've seen some amazing pictures in Ireland of basking sharks close to the shore um, yeah. you know swimming around but it, it didn't take long so yeah up until the, the 1960s um, they were hunted and actually yeah. uh, Patrick it was this year was the first time that I got to see them yeah um, from uh, County Mayo off Ackle Island you, you can nearly set your, your watch to when they're going to arrive off uh, Keen Bay, so it, it is a sight to behold. It is, it is. But it took it took that long for them to come back. So it's, it's who's who's to say that at one point, you know, white sharks did exist um, off the coast, uh, but they've just been so hammered that you know they went extinct, functionally extinct. Yeah. Well, let's hope that doesn't uh, let's hope that doesn't ever happen because they are very important. Um, they control the oxygen levels in the water. They control the seal population, who then in turn control the fish underneath them. So they're they're a very important part of the food chain, Patrick. So let's just yeah, hope. And they're and they're and they're amazing animals to 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 witness and behold in person. You know, that's that's the. They tell the story for all the other critters in the ocean, right? I mean, nobody, nobody in the world cares about a sardine. They just don't. Like, who cares about a sardine? <laughs> Unless they're tinned, 
nobody cares about a sardine, but a white shark could be the stand-in for that. Because the white sharks are there, you know that the sardine populations are healthy. Um, because the bluefin tuna are eating the sardines and the sharks are eating the bluefin tuna. So as long as we know they're there, it's kind of like the, the great big flag that says, everything is sort of okay. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and the second we start losing them, the second they start functionally disappearing from their, their traditional haunts, then we know that we are in deep, deep, deep trouble. And that's one of the things that I, I, I really appreciate about this species is the fact that they're still here. Um, and we can still access them and still be in awe of them and ask all those questions. Like every time I'm at Guadalupe and every time a white shark swims by, I, I, I just can't help but ask that guy, where have you been? <laughs> what have you been doing this year? I know what I've been doing this year. I've been telling, you know, Alexa to turn on music. <laughs> turn up my turn up my my, my aircon or, or you know do things for me. Um, but what have you been doing? You know, and and that's the exciting thing for me about these animals is that they all have stories to tell, and it's. Uh, yeah, yeah. No, absolutely. Um, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, hopefully someday I get I get to see them. Hopefully next year, 2023, is uh, the year. But um, Patrick, uh, I'd like to thank you very much for your time uh, this Labor Day. Thank you for, uh, for talking to me and uh, enjoy the rest of your weekend. And we will talk again soon. So that's it for the first poor podcast. We'll talk again soon.